Welcome to A Little Too Quiet. It's the Ferndale Library podcast, and it's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. I am Jeff Milo, and joining me on the podcast is an author, Michigan-born but now based in Chicago, James Kennedy. And man, has he had an adventure of a life. He studied he studied physics, he studied philosophy, he he taught English in, in over in Japan, and he taught science in Washington, DC. But he always, always wanted to be a writer. In fact, he was even beginning to write books of his own, illustrating books of his own too. By the age of seven, he came out with The Order of Odd Fish, which was an acclaimed YA novel more than a decade ago, but he has followed that up with his first novel for adult readers called Dare to Know, in which he imagines something of a cottage industry that is that is propped up, uh, informed by a little bit of quantum mechanics that is using technology to figure out the date of your own death, should that be something that you are wondering about. And don't we all? You can contact uh, a representative from Dare to Know, and you can meet with them, and they will actually use these thanatons, these death particles, to actually figure out date and time of your death, and they'll give it to you in a report. If that's something you want, you can pay money for it. When <laughs> what a what a future! Now, our protagonist is a is a salesman of sorts in this sort of industry, and eventually he kind of breaks a cardinal rule, and he looks up the date of his own death. The twist here is that he should have died 23 minutes ago. Well, what happens next? Well, we look back at his life, we look back at his lost love, we look back at his former friends, we figure out what's gonna happen to him, and oh my gosh, does James Kennedy have such a vibrant and kind of wonderfully wild way of writing. This is this is science fiction, it has a bit of a thriller aspect, it has a bit of an eerie atmospheric horror aspect too. There's some corporate satire going on, but man, I really can't wait for you to hear this chat with James Kennedy, who born and raised in Troy, Michigan, which isn't far from us here in Ferndale, based now in Chicago. We're talking about his latest novel. It came out in the fall of last year. It's called Dare to Know. We'll have links to that and more information about Order of Oddfish in the show notes as well. And we'll chat about what's coming up next for James. Here's our chat. Um, I used to be, so I was a physics major in college, mm-hmm. and I used to be a computer programmer, and and I was kind of a computer programmer during the time of, you know, the, the, kind of the giddy time of, you know, oh, the, the, the world, the internet and computers seems like such a, a revolutionary space where we can all be creative and all these wonderful things happen. And then I was also a computer programmer at that time when things started to slide into just feeling like computers were this kind of like instrument of surveillance or quantifying all of these very intimate details about your life and kind of making life worse. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of lived through that inflection point. And I wanted to write a book that gave the sense of that feeling of that slipping. Um, like, w- like when you think about, I don't know, the internet and like I don't know, 2008 or something, it seemed like everybody was just bringing all their weird projects online, you know, like, oh, I never told anybody about this, but here I, I reprogrammed a typewriter so it could play Zork or something, <laughs> you know? And, 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 and but then now it, it doesn't, I mean, I, that, that kind of stuff I think still happens in the internet, but it's kind of been drowned out by a different kind of vibe that doesn't feel 
as great. And I don't think this is just me getting old. I, I think, it, 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 but the, um, it's so, I, I wanted to give a sense of that feeling, that slippage of something that seemed like this zone of exploration and creativity into something a little more sinister mm-hmm. and having to do with the quantification and surveillance of the most intimate details of our lives and making money off of it. And I've, I suppose the most intimate and unknowable detail about your life is the day and time that you're going to die and how it's going to happen. Right. And it's the kind of thing that we all want to know. And so I, I, I had that kind of germ of an idea. And I also had this idea... I had had this for a long time about just, I wanted to write a novel about a salesman, but a salesman of something weird and something that he's like a technical expert in, but he's kind of down on his luck. Mm-hmm. And those two things kind of came together and they started to germinate. And then I was able to draw on my experience in physics and computer science to make up like a fake computer science and make up a fake physics that could, you know, kind of give some kind of explanation to this idea uh, of being able to tell the time and date of your death. So I made up these fantastical particles called thanatons. Death that, particles. That, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that, that tell the, that you can, physicists can, or scientists can manipulate to find out the tame date and time of your death. But I, again, I didn't want it, I wanted to give that kind of occult, sinister feeling. I didn't want the, the date and time to come from an app. Or something. I wanted to be something weirder, so that's why I set up in the book like this this kind of intense one-on-one surreal interview that the that the salesman does with the client that 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 gets in in the idea that there's certain calculations that a computer can't perform, mm-hmm. and that was another thing that kind of fired my imagination. What is what would be the nature of a calculation, but a calculation that a computer can't perform, and that uh, gave me a lot of inspiration for a lot of the book as well. Yeah. Over the last two years, you've seen these trends on social media where people will on Instagram, they'll hold their phone up to their own face and they'll be like, what is your spirit animal? And it has sort of a, a, <laughs> a casino rally going and it lands yes. lands on like a, a bird of some kind or the m- movie that was number one the year you were born is predicting your future. Uh, that that idea of, of, of just flippantly treating that this is a very serious sit down one on one thing. But I like that in that opening, you do mention something along the lines of people signing up for it, maybe not really realizing it, thinking it might be a joke, and then kind of everyone usually having a breakdown or an existential crisis or crying right when the salesman actually gets to the actual facts of it. So, yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's funny that you should We were talking about the, the, you know, like, what's your spirit animal or something like that. And I I think that we're not really... That you, you made me think of something, Jeff. Yeah. And it's a, people don't know who they are. Right. And they always want somebody to tell them who they are. And I think this is the secret reason why Harry Potter was so popular. It's not the wizardry and it's not the cool school in Britain. It's the sorting hat. Yeah. The sorting hat. Because that's, people always say, oh, I'm such a Hufflepuff, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and, 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 like, and that's why like, uh, um, you know, Divergent was so popular. Right. It's like, here is your tribe. We're going to decide for you who you are. Right. And this is here. And, and then because people walk around, I and mean, we all walk around, we see other people, and they seem to have being. They seem to have, you know, 
faces that are under their control. They seem to have likes and dislikes that they don't understand. But when we look inside ourselves, we don't see anything. Identity and purpose. Identity and purpose. Yes. Yeah. We know that we don't have purpose. We know that we don't have identity. So we we look at people outside of us. We see that they have it. We say, okay, well, I'll imitate that. Or, Or just please tell me. Just tell me who I am right. and give me some relief. And so those kind of things like, oh, your spirit animal or your, your Patronus or whatever is a, you know, a, a snake or you, um, you know, oh, th- this is what, what Star Wars character you are. Or, you know, this is the time and date of your death. People just hate their freedom. They right. hate that things are, are undetermined. They hate the fact that their life is their own choice. And they just want to be told who they are. Because, I mean, it, we all feel this. I'm not saying I'm better than this we all feel this crushing sense of who am I? Right. Right. Hence the title dare to know it is all built into (laughs) that. And then also what is also built into the way you structure this novel is I would hope that if, if not, not a spoiler, it happens fairly early. It's told on the back of the book. The protagonist does find out the date of his death, even though he's a salesman of such a thing, there's a bit of a mystery. He realizes he technically should already be dead, but, but to, to have that fall on you, you as the author then decide, well, let's look back at this person's life. Let's look back at his his youth. What what went wrong? What went right? Who did he fall in love with? All of that. Um, I don't know why my, my mind went off into something like Groundhog's Day, but that's something where you're kind of in some sort of temporal existential warp. But we don't, the only, the only purpose of that narrative is how do you get out of the loop? You don't really... Mm-hmm. You don't really analyze Phil's past or look at his childhood or really even get to know him. Uh, did, did, so did you realize that it would be important to get to know this person or did you realize it was important to appreciate the fact that someone would t- very much so assess their life after learning this news? Yeah, well, I think that is... So what, after I had the idea of, okay, there's a salesman who tells the time and date your death, like then as a novelist, you're like, okay, that's not enough. Right. That's a premise, but it's not a story. Right. And so the, the most interesting thing you could do with that is that, okay, he's not, you, you, like, as a storyteller, you're like, okay, set up a prohibition. Set up something the character can't, is not allowed to do, and then have them do it. That's usually when a story gets good. And, um, okay, this person sells a time and date your death. He's not allowed to look it up. Okay, he does look it up. Okay, what's the most surprising thing that can happen? That it already happened. That he's already dead. And so now, now I'm just stuck with this seemingly impossible premise. Um, like, oh, he looks at his date and time death up. He died 23 minutes ago. What happens next? And when I think about it, like, well, after you die, I do talk about a little bit or I speculate about what happens after you die in the book. But what's really interesting about somebody's life is their life. Mm-hmm. And so and when you're on the verge of death, um, you, you do look back on your life and try to assess your choices and things like that. So, yeah, a lot of the book is flashbacks, but also kind of building up to this moment. And, and, and so, yeah, a, a book about death is, is naturally going to be about that person's life, or I hope so. Mm-hmm. And then while looking at the life that he led, he's able to understand the nature of why he's dying and why he's dying in the specific way and what his relationship is to the universe, which is kind of, not no spoilers, kind of unique among everybody else. And he, too, just like Groundhog Day, though, is breaking out of a cycle, or he's breaking the universe out of a cycle. But we don't find that out until later. Um, right. And that gets to the part of the, part of the book which is difficult to understand, and I kind of made it deliberately so. Um, like the the book is pretty straightforward, although there's a lot of flashbacks in the first two thirds. And then I wanted to have this feeling of a 
It's either a descent into madness or a breakthrough to another reality. And I wanted to have the feeling of, like, I really love the movies of David Lynch. Sure. And like when I got to the end of like Twin Peaks Return, mm-hmm. uh, and you know uh, Cooper is sit, sitting in the street going, "What year is it?" Right. You, right. you know, I, I was like, I don't know what's happening in that scene, but I will think about it for the rest of my life. It, it, it is very like I can feel the logic of that he means something there. I feel I can get sixty percent of it, but I can't totally get it, mm-hmm. and that's what makes it stick in my mind—a mystery that can't fully be solved. But I know that he knows the answer to that mystery, and and so I wanted to give that kind of feeling. Now, not everybody likes that kind of book. Um, however, I love that kind of story and that kind of book, and so it's kind of for people who enjoy not solving a mystery but sitting in a mystery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you absolutely achieved that. Through Thank the you. last 70, 50 pages or so, um, the book's been out for a while. I'm certainly not going to spoil anything other than I would love to hint at the fact that things go compellingly off the rails, it seems, or <laughs> does it? And you're not and you feel a little upside down and it does kind of become uh, a literary roller coaster. <laughs> it's just wonderful. It almost rem- but and I don't know if this is a, an influence and it's just randomly out of the air. But in terms of writing this this mesmerically, this descriptively, this almost hallucinogenically, you know, I I would find, you know, Bradbury himself doing stuff like that when you get to climactic sequences. So, oh, I love Ray Bradbury. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. The, 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 he absolutely. And also one of the great things about Bradbury is that he's a science fiction writer, but he's so intensely nostalgic. Mm-hmm. He writes about the future, but then the, he has his like in the Martian Chronicles. Like he has his Martian, his astronauts go to Mars, right. and what do they find when they get there? It's like the hometown, the boyhood hometown of the astronauts. Right. He can't get away from and like his own memories. And I think the, you know, the best fiction is kind of rooted in you know the most intense feelings that you had when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. And Bradbury absolutely accesses that again and again. I think like Bradbury, Philip K. Dick. Um, like for the kind of a more alienating, hard-edged aspects of the story, like you know David Lynch, Murakami. Oh um, yeah. Um, I, I I think anybody who like yeah. It, it, but then I also wanted to have at least for the early parts, like the clarity of like Isaac Asimov or yep. Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah. Something that seems like okay, I'm going to explain something scientifically, and I'm going to use like I used to be a science teacher as well. I'm going to use every trick I know to take something very complicated and try to explain it to you very clearly and make this crazy thing seem very rational. Mm-hmm. And so I feel if I can get people on my side with rational explanations of this crazy thing and also tell a very emotional story about this guy who is a jerk. Like I, I fully understand if the main character is a jerk and, and, and he's in some ways irredeemable, but I mean, aren't we all? Right. Like I, I, I always like, but then I feel if I can hook them with all these emotional and clear things, then maybe I'll, I'll keep you at the end mm-hmm. uh, when, it, when it gets super crazy. But I, I always wonder when like, people complain about like not likable protagonists in stories or they go, oh, I, they, I always think, how likable are you? Right. Like, like, right. Like, are, 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 are you sure you're not a jerk too? I mean, we all are jerks. And like, like, when people object to somebody being problematic or making bad decisions in a story, it's like, I didn't create a new bad person right. and set him loose on the earth. This is a fictional person, and he probably has more in common with you than you would like to admit. Right. It, you know what? My 
my brother always says when we rewatch this movie, whenever it comes up, we watch Back to the Future and he always says, Marty McFly is a perfect protagonist. And that's what he likes to say. And what he's really hinting at is that Marty doesn't appear to really have flaws. He's kind of this blank slate cipher. The really only way you could have a perfect protagonist is if they are a cipher for the audience and you don't get to learn about any of those flaws. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, Harry Potter also is a cipher. Right. Um, And basically, he and Marty McFly have the same flaw. Although with Marty McFly, it doesn't come out until Back to the Future 2 or 3. Right. He doesn't like anybody to call him a chicken. There's that. And so, and Harry will always kind of like, he's kind of a little bit hot-headed and he kind right. of like throws himself in a situation to prove that he's brave or somebody gets his dander up. Right. That's usually the, the flaw that you give a cipher. Right. I love all the Back to the Futures and all the Harry Potters. Don't get me wrong. Sure. But those are both for children. Right. <laughs> right. And, 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 I, and I love books for children and I read them as an adult without any shame. Right. However, when you're writing an adult book, you have to grapple with flaws. Right. Um, and, um, or if you're writing literature, you could write in a book for adults, which character doesn't have a flaw. But if you're trying to write something a little bit deeper, you, like, like one of my favorite books of all time, but it's a little bit obscure. Have you ever read uh, Frederick Exley's A Fan's Notes? No. Uh, it, it's really good. And it's uh, about this, it, it's semi-autobiographical. This guy, Frederick Exley, is basically this alcoholic from the 60s and 70s. And he only wrote one book of note, that book, although he wrote a couple others. And it's just about his life is kind of just a deranged no good alcoholic that he just kind of keeps messing up his own life again and again and again and 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 the reason they call it a fan's notes is that he's obsessed with the football player frank gifford and so what he does he just like goes and like yells at the tv like oh go frank go frank and feels like he really identify with this person who's so far above him but really at a certain point in his life he realizes i'll only be a fan you know and he is a uh, um, a contemptible person, but it's so compelling right. because if you're honest with yourself, you see part of yourself in mm-hmm. him. Um, mm-hmm. And and uh, but nobody would ever say this is a this is a protagonist that we all come to love and admire. Uh, um, like I, I know that my dad, like when he uh, uh, like watches something, he he always wants there to be a hero. It, to the point where like he can't watch Seinfeld mm-hmm. because whenever George does something stupid, like eats an eclair out of the trash, my dad will walk out of the room and go, stupid, stupid, stupid. But we've all eaten the eclair out of the trash. And I, I think we need to reckon with that. We have to we have to confess that. Uh, but here's and and I don't know if this is some sort of magic trick you pulled off in the writing process, but you whether it's a jerk or not, you still care about this character to an extent you you care for him to find out more information you care for him to maybe find out whether or not he is going to die or what you 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 care for him to kind of solve everything it's not like you it's not like you're saying oh, i don't whatever this this guy made his bed it's not like you're saying he, he made his bed he's got a lie in it right. so you know what i mean oh yeah so i um do a podcast uh with this guy matt bird who wrote a uh a book on storytelling and like screenwriting called uh, The Secrets of Story. Mm-hmm. And we kind of talk about storytelling craft on this podcast. And uh, I usually disagree with him. However, and that's, why, that's why the podcast is fun. Is we have like a Siskel and Ebert vibe. Great. But um, one of the things that he says that I do agree with is that if you want to make, there's, you ever hear that, that book called Save the Cat? Mm-hmm. Okay, so like this guy, screenwriter Blake Snyder says, oh, if you want to make, you know, audiences care about somebody, you got to have them do something sympathetic, like save a cat. That is actually not the case. 
Um, what Matt says, and in fact, like in like the Hunger Games, Katniss literally kills a cat, like in the first chapter. Right. So, and everybody loves Katniss. I love Katniss at least. So, um, so what do you really have to do? And Matt says you have to make the audience believe, care, and invest. And what that means is the first thing you do is to make the audience believe you give details about the protagonist and about the world that they're in that are so weird and specific. The audience is like, oh, they like they couldn't have made that up. That feels real. So uh, little things about like Luke buying droids right. in Star at the beginning of Star Wars. It feels so like every day, but it feels it feels so real right you know like it, it the, oh yeah this is what you wouldn't be in a science fiction movie always be running around and, and through hallways of spaceships shooting people you'd be in your junky little farm buying these junky robots and haggling with these little creatures over them you or know? you got to go pick up power converters from the tashi station there's the yeah, exactly. errands you know uh, you can go waste time with your friends <laughs> later <laughs> uh, so that's believe but then there's care which is you have to have something unjust happen to your hero that's kind of, and it might be related to their flaw, but it's, it's a punishment that happens to them that's, like, that's out of proportion to like, what they've done. So, uh, like, and it's this little, let's just take the same scene. This is little, but like Luke says, oh, I was going to go to Tashi Station, pick up some power converters. And, and Owen, Uncle Owen snaps at him and says, oh, you can waste time with your friends later. It's like, ooh, he kind of got like put in his place a little bit. You right, know? right. Or like, you see that Luke is kind of like, oh, I'm stuck here. Nothing ever happens. You kind of care about him. Right. Because, they, you know, he's like, oh, this is, he's got a bad deal in life. But right. then happens is invest, in which the character is not a sad sack. They do things that show, oh, this person is capable of solving the problems of this story. This isn't a total zero. So we can see how he knows how to fix these robots. We can see that he has dreams when he's like, I think the biggest invest moment is when he stands out and looks at those two suns setting and we, the music swells. You're like, oh, my God, I, I think I'm on this guy's side. You know, and he, he speaks very knowledgeably about, you know, about the, the life that he lives. He's not like a complete nudge. And so believe, care and invest. And I think if you do that, the character doesn't necessarily have to be likable. You just have to make people believe, care and invest in them. And then if you're going to write something that has an antihero in it, make the audience believe care and invest mm -hmm. i can't help but ask what gets gets away from the book but what i guess then this is a long time ago what inspired you to get into the world of physics and you know actually reading your <laughs> you reading your book too sent me down the google rabbit hole and it and i just didn't realize that this whole idea of life or life after death mixing up with quantum mechanics there's a lot of articles out there this is a whole this is a whole thing james <laughs> it, it's true i um so i I always wanted to be a writer. Uh, like when I was a kid, then I like wrote like, like even like when I was seven years old, like I wrote, would write books and I'd illustrate them. And I'd staple them. I said, okay, I've written a book, you know, and I actually, I put some of them up on my website and, and, uh, and actually when my first book, when it came out, uh, the order of Oddfish, which is like a YA fantasy, I would go to schools and I like show the kids, like this is the first book I ever wrote. And I think seeing how bad the first books I ever wrote, it kind of gives kids like the oh maybe I too can become a published writer because yeah, I'm older like I'm that age and my books aren't that bad right um so I I would I was always wanted to write but then I I I had a suspicion about becoming an English major or a creative writing major so I was like if I major in that what will I write about mm -hmm. um the, and I remember in high school reading Brave New World for the first time and in the first chapter of Brave New World 
there's a lot of like scientific terminology it's used in a very authoritative way and like and i looked up aldous huxley and i read a, a lot of other stuff by him and he's like he knew a lot of things other like other than just how to write or about literature he knew a lot about literature and how to write but he also was this expert on science he was expert on you know uh biology and physics and things like that i was like I have to learn other things to have grist for the mill. And I remember I, one of the, my favorite books as a kid was A Wrinkle in Time. Mm-hmm. And I kind of always wanted to be like the dad in A Wrinkle in Time. I think a lot of people growing up, they, they, uh, um, they identify with Meg. And I guess I did too, for a certain extent. But I also, I, I like the idea of the father is like sent on these secret scientific missions, you know, and he, he's important because he's a smart scientist. It says, you know, I, I want to, and it seemed like a, a worthy goal. And so I became a physics major and I really enjoyed it, but I realized I'm not smart enough to be a physics major. And, and, and I, so I, I completed the degree in physics, but it also had a degree in philosophy too. And watching the, and the two of those things coming together, I think was also part of the inspiration of, of Dare to Know. Absolutely. Like the, where physics and philosophy meet. And then in, in particular, like different interpretations of quantum mechanics and, um, and kind of being able to tell the difference between kind of the the realistic interpretations of quantum mechanics and the crackpot ones that uh, that people do for you know for sensationalistic reasons and i wanted to give my hero that kind of sense like he knows the difference between the sensationalistic interpretations and the realistic ones because i you'd get confronted with that all the time because of, hey i heard about this crazy quantum thing that says we're all ghosts I was like, well, okay, well, maybe, oh, well, oh, yes, in a way, but, uh. and, 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 and so, but then, so I didn't want to become a scientist, so I did the last refuge of a scoundrel for a physics major, which is to become a computer programmer. It's kind of taken a step down, <laughs> but, but I, I really enjoy, but I grew up writing video games. I, I loved writing video games as a kid. I said, well, this is something I know how to do. So actually, I got a second, uh, I, I, I took a, a year and a half, and I went actually. So I grew up in Troy. Uh, mm-hmm. For your your listeners, Michigan connection. I was going to get to yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I um, and so after going getting my degree in physics and philosophy, then I moved to D.C. for a while, and I was a science teacher, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. And then I moved to Japan, and I was a an English teacher there for a while. And then I came back here. And I said like, I'm going to be a computer programmer. So I went to Oakland University for a year and a half, got um, a second bachelor's in computer science. And then came to Chicago and, and was doing software engineering for a while, and um, it's it was kind of I think it, it was all of that that kind of came together to yeah give the idea of this story. It's the perfect it's middle ground. It's 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 the nexus of all of that. Um, there's elements of satire towards the corporate world. Uh, there is those quantum mechanics. There is philosophy. There's computer programming. There's there's all of that. But then there's there's a beating human heart at the at that at all of it, which must have been, I presume, you know, one of the most um, important, I guess, what a uh, checkoffs uh, to do list. Make sure there's a human heart in this book, kind of situation for such a book Absolutely. like this. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that, which is that's, kind of a love story. You know, I mean, so, it is a love story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I wanted to have a love story between people who are flawed, right? Uh, right. Between two people who are like when we meet them they haven't totally figured themselves out yet. Right. And people who are flawed and haven't figured themselves out yet can fall in love right. and have real relationships. Even if you met them, you might be like, oh, who are these people? Right. But, but like maybe you'd recognize yourself in them and 
And I think they do grow over time. Maybe the woman that he loves grows a bit more than he does or grows beyond him. Uh, but that's something that he has to reckon with and realize. Mm-hmm. And I, I think what I, I wanted to write a science fiction story that had that human heart that wasn't just about the ideas. And that is what really compelled me to keep writing. I, I wanted to explore the, the, these, the ish, this romance mm-hmm. and how it changes over time about the, the feeling of, oh, this is the one that got away. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think we all have that feeling of like, you, you know, like we look back in our lives like, ah, but what, what if things have been different with this one person? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that was really important to me to get out. And, and if somebody, when somebody's looking back on their life, those are the kind of things that they're going to think. And so if you have a book about life and death, you're going to have that. And another thing, actually, when I was talking earlier about, you know, uh, being in Chicago or growing up in Troy yeah. or um, go, going to Oakland University. And, and, and for my undergraduate, I went to Notre Dame. It was all very much in the Midwest. And I wanted this to be a very Midwestern book. Like most of it happens in Chicago or in uh, Indiana or Southern Illinois. Um, and, and then when things get really weird and bad, that's when you're in San Francisco. Um, right. And, and I, there, there is a kind of evil emanating from San Francisco that right. is like rolling all over the country in the form of all this kind of a tech dystopian world that we're living in. Right. And I wanted to give that feeling. Um, For sure. And, and I, I don't think enough books are set in the Midwest. Uh, I think a lot of books, too many books are set in New York. Like it feels like 85% of the books I read is like, and, and then it, it, they, they love to flaunt their New Yorkness. Like he walked up off. 125th Avenue and then went to uh, just like, I don't know this city that well. This doesn't mean anything to me. And so I wanted to talk about Minneapolis. Right. You know, I wanted to talk about uh, downstate Illinois. Like I, I wanted to talk about places that you don't hear about enough in uh, mainstream, you know, literary fiction. Which is something Bradbury would do. It's something yes. Vonnegut would do. Um, you know, I, I don't, I, I could, I, I could see myself definitely recommending this book perhaps for fans of Cat's Cradle. I think there's some, some yes. energies going on there, for sure. I love I love Vonnegut so much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, Vonnegut and, and Bradbury. And, and so it's weird that all of these kind of, yeah, far out science fiction writers come from like the very square and seemingly right. ordinary Midwest. Right, um, right. They're, they're like, they're, they're also apple pie dudes, but you know, they're also yes. visionaries. But I think, but you know who else is an apple pie dude? Uh, David Lynch. Oh yeah, like, when you look he's at a David cherry Lynch, pie dude. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. G- good catch. Yeah, uh, he he's but he's somebody who like when you look at his Twitter feed, like it, it says like, oh yeah, I'm an Eagle Scout, right? You know, uh, um, right. and he presents himself in this very square way. But I think when you present yourself in a square way, or if you're in touch with your squareness, that gives you an anchor to really explore the true weirdness, right? Because it gives you a way to get back, right? And so if if you have that line, you can always crawl back, and that means you you're free to explore more and more, right? Right, because whether you're in white picket fences of blue velvet, the metaphorical strobe machine can always turn on, and you never know what happens. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, I don't. Well, you gotta have that contrast, right? Right. Like if you just if you if you, if you just go straight into the weird and you stay in the weird, there's no there, there's no rhythm of going right. back and forth between the two. Right. And if you don't have that rhythm, you don't have that contrast, then you don't feel anything. Right. Or like a good piece of music, what this book does is you feel like the after after a few choruses, you feel like after the bridge that it should have a big ending. A piece of music should have a big ending. This book has a frenetic and kind of furious ending, just like a good yes. a good song. So thank uh, you. 
you know, I couldn't help but but bring this up if you could. And, you know, we're here in a library, you know, former Troy resident, former Troy library patron. Um, and you I, I I enjoyed reading the the afterword, too. And you mentioned that librarians have been helpful in your life. And I think that was beautiful. I just wanted you to comment on that. Oh, thank you. I mean, my uh, the, yeah, my wife is a librarian. My sister in law is a librarian. <laughs> Um, that uh, one of my really good friends, a lot of my really good friends, Betsy Bird and Eddie Berland in Chicago are librarians. I know a lot of librarians. That's right. <laughs> I'm plugged into that world. So, and Cricket, uh, your colleague, like, and the, the great thing about librarians is that they, they want to help, yeah, you know, do. like, and, 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 um, and so like Cricket, like when my first book, Order of Oddfish came out, she was super enthusiastic about it and like set up events at the Rochester Hill Public Library and kind of promoted and they, they they like authors and authors like librarians and it's it, it's it's a good relationship i um th- we each give each other something yeah and and libraries are so important and i see this with all the time with my wife coming home and telling me like you know the stuff that she does because it's not libraries have been pressed into services all these other things in just a place where you get books as you know but just for your listeners like um like uh, my wife works at the evanston public library and it's not they, they they have to be a community resource in a lot of other ways, a place for people to gather, also a place where um, people who have nowhere else to go in the winter and or people who don't have a computer or, you know, uh, or Internet access or, um, you know, kids who need a place to go sometimes. And it, I mean, if maybe society would <laughs> would get its act together in other ways, this wouldn't be the case. But libraries pick up the slack for a lot of other governmental entities that are kind of falling behind. Right. Um, we are and, another, and, another kind of community center. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and, and, and it's inspiring to see and, um, and yeah, so uh, libraries are very important. Yeah. Uh, I have to say that you have, I think you've found an excellent lane, this mixture of sci-fi with a little bit of, a little bit of eeriness, a little bit of horror, a little bit of physics, a little bit of philosophy. I, I, I don't know if you can, if you can or, or want to try to, to pull that off again, but it sounds like you have invented a genre for yourself here. I think it's great. Uh, Thank you. Are, have you been working on anything lately? Yes. Um, so I just signed uh, two books. This book came out on Quirk. And so I just signed a two book deal also with Quirk. So there'll be two more books coming out from Quirk. The next one is called Bride of the Tornado. Um, <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> another very aggressively Midwestern book, and it's very kind of uh, Rosemary's Baby meets Twin Peaks kind of vibe to it. Right. It's not, um, it almost sounds like an Ed Wood title. It's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, it, yeah. <laughs> it, it, and it's also a romance. That's um, beautiful. And, um, and, but it's also super, super weird. And got uh, some, you know, Cronenberg body horror in it. Um, and then after that, uh, so that book is essentially finished. We just have to edit it. It'll come out in 2023. Great. And then the book after that I'm working on right now, it's called Let Him In. And that will be the weirdest thing I've written yet. And that is, uh, and that's going to be kind of like a book in three parts. Have you ever, have you ever read um, Isaac Asimov won the Hugo and the Nebula for a book called uh, The the gods themselves. Oh, I've that? seen it on the shelves, but I've only, I've only done the foundations thing with him. So uh, um, okay, uh, okay. How about this? Um, a, a book that just came out actually at the same time as uh, Dare to Know. It's called The Actual Star by Monica Byrne. No, I gotta look that um, up too. 
and there's another one called To Paradise by Hanya Yanagihara, which are books in three parts. There's like a part that happens at one time era, and the second part it's roughly the same length, different time era. The third part, like way in the future. Does it feel thing. like a string of novellas in a way? Yes, yes, but they're all very intimately related to each other, and they all have characters and situations that recur, and they all come together to make this one whole. Like none of them would really stand on their own. And so it's kind of a book like that. And it's about, I, I mean, I've never talked about it before on a podcast. So like, it's about these silver doors that start unaccountably appearing all over the world in the late 1970s. They, just like in the walls of like schools, homes, uh, like, like uh, stores, things like that. And they don't open and they don't do anything. And, it, and nobody knows why they're there. And then some kids start to find a way to open them and go in them and find this weird maze beyond it. Uh, and, and then more and more people are learning and then the adults find out and everybody's starting to access a strange maze beyond there. And then the doors start appearing on people's bodies and people going in that way. And, um, and then a lot of crazy stuff happens. <laughs> uh, and that's like the first one. The second one is about like how these sil silver doors came to be. And the third one is like 10,000 years in the future after the thing that came to us through the silver doors has kind of come and gone. And it's just what, what, what it's about secretly is about the effect of computers on humanity. The computers are the silver doors. Like it's, it's a very strange world that we live in, that we lived through this, that these things just plopped into our lives. Mm -hmm. these, these screens that we're looking into right now right. that do all these insane things that at first were locked and could not access each other. And then we all found a way to get to each other through them. And we're kind of, when we go into them, we're kind of leaving something of ourselves behind in them, but we're not sure what they're doing to us or what's going to come back out through it. Um, and so uh, it's, it's kind of an exploration of the humanity's emotional relationship with computers, past, present, and future. Right. This is good. This is good uh, uh, torch-bearing to carry it forward because in, in Fahrenheit 451, we have TV screens on our walls, and I'm sure in the 50s that sounded like a wonderful, <laughs> like cool version of, of, of the future. So it's like, Ray, we actually got there. We kind of have it now. We have we had that connectivity, but now let's what's the implications now of that from a modern day lens? You can go forward with that forward with that with uh silver doors. You know um, what's interesting about uh, Fahrenheit 451, what what he really got right was the intimate like that that was not yet there in the fifties, was how Mildred, Guy's wife, talks about the people who are on those screens as her family. And she right. has this intimate and social relationship with them, yep. which had not, it, it, I know people like had parasocial relationships with characters before, but not to the, ex the, the extent that Mildred has in Fahrenheit 51 is the way people feel about social media figures now. Right. Um, and, and also, um, it's interesting, I love Fahrenheit 451, but I talk to kids now and they don't get it. And the reason they don't get it is because they live in it. Yeah, like, yep. It doesn't seem like a dystopia to them because like just nobody... People don't read as much as they did in the 50s. People are enslaved to these screens, and to them, it's a default. Right. So when you show them a dystopia that doesn't look that much different from where they're living, they're like, uh, so what? Right. And I think the modern-day Fahrenheit 451 is Feed by M.T. Anderson. Oh, right um, it, it, Have you read it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so it, for those who haven't read it, like, the Internet is directly in everybody's brains, right. and, and like, people you know, chat with each other. It's kind of like telepathy. Um, and, and, you know, people deliberately downloading malware into their brains so they can go mal, you know, and uh, uh, the kind of way of getting intoxicated through the internet. 
and people are weird if they don't have the internet totally installed in their brains. And I think that, even though that book was written, I think 20 years ago, yeah, that was what I think scratches the Fahrenheit 451 itch for kids now. Yeah. James, I love how your brain works. I could talk to you for hours, but it has been- <laughs> I love this. You Thank should you, so you should much. come back on the podcast uh, soon. I would love to, anytime. That'd be, That'd be great. Thanks again for joining us on the podcast, man. Great. Thank you very much, Jeff. And that was my chat with James Kennedy. And I think I could go on and on with him about David Lynch and Kurt Vonnegut, two of my favorite subjects. Um, and I think that um, everything that he mentioned in influence-wise, if you are a fan, if you are a fan of literally any name that he dropped, you could open up Dare to Know and you will enjoy the ride. So we'll have more links to that book in our show notes. Thank you for tuning in once again to another episode of A Little Too Quiet. It's the Ferndale Library podcast brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. And the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each episode is by a local musician, John Duffy. If you want to support this podcast, go to ferndalefriends.org. But please remember to rate, review, subscribe, leave a comment maybe, or just tell a friend. And if you enjoyed this conversation, share it to social media. We'll be back next week with more. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.